Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. This podcast is hosted generously by 2d6.org, a wonderful website to go to for all sorts of board game news, reviews, and commentaries. That's www.2d6.org. The Long View is also generously sponsored by GameSurplus.com, one of the web's premier board game retailers. Thor and his family will be happy to try and meet all of your board gaming needs. Whether it's the newest hotness or a hard-to-find import, you can find them at GameSurplus.com. My name is Jeff Gamble, and on this episode, I am joined by two special guests, Joe Huber and Eric Brocious. Am I saying that correctly? That's right. Beautiful, wonderful. I want to make sure I'm not butchering anybody's names. Uh, So, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show tonight. And tonight, uh, Joe and Eric and I are going to take a look at the 18xx family of games. Now, by way of introduction, 18xx-style games are uh, primarily uh, what we would consider to be train games. These are games that are heavy economic simulations that usually involve rails, uh, rail networks, and running companies, investing in companies, trying to build networks and routes to most efficiently uh, create the best bottom line that you can possibly make for yourself. Um, and it involves a, a lot of heavy strategy and mathematics. And this is a, a style, a kind of a family, I like to call it, of games that uh, I've been very intrigued by. Um, I, I've dipped my toe in the 18xx waters, but I have very limited experience with uh, direct play. And that's one of the things that uh, that intrigued me about making this episode tonight with these two gentlemen is that in some ways, I find the, the 18xx world to be a little bit intimidating, and I, I don't think I'm the only one out there that does. So I thought it would, might be a, a good idea to do an episode of The Long View about this family of games to try to kind of answer some fundamental questions. Number one, what is it about these games that makes them so compelling that they have such a avid following? Secondly, what is it about these games that gives them the longevity that they seem to enjoy? And thirdly, what advice advice might my guests have for people like myself who are intrigued by 18xx games but might be a little bit intimidated by the reported complexity of them. And so without any further ado, I'm going to welcome both of you gentlemen and thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, I'm going to ask you if if either of you or both of you would like to, can you maybe give a brief overview about what 18xx games are? Did I kind of hit the nail there or did I miss it? What would you gentlemen have to say? about that so i think you certainly gave a a good general description of of the uh uh 18xx field um as you say they're they are mostly um train games uh mostly around the development of railways really around the world in the 1800s uh that's the that's the name uh though there are certainly Multiple exceptions that fall outside of uh, outside of that realm, but simply reuse the uh, the mechanisms in other uh, periods uh, throughout history or future history, as the case might be. Yes, the other thing I would say, Jeff, is I don't think the games are heavy mathematically. It's simply that the decisions you make often have long term consequences. Uh, one of the things that intrigues me about eighteen xx games is that I will make a decision 
and then something will happen as a result of that decision and my opponent's reactions to it. And I will uh, perhaps not be pleased with that. I will determine that what I did didn't work out for my advantage. And yet I understand why it happened, and I also understand that I could have foreseen that that was going to happen. And it's in some ways addictive to think, I could try that in another game, or I could try a different strategy in another game, and I could attempt to predict what's going to happen more effectively. And um, I'd like to give it another shot. So it's interesting what you say there. Uh, you're saying that part of the, the uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, part of the uh, intrigue of these games for you is that uh, your decisions are not really the only thing that drive the game, but also the manner in which your opponents respond to your decisions. Yes? That's true for me. Oh, absolutely. I, I like games where the decisions of each player affect how the game plays for each other player, and um, you have to both predict how other people's decisions are going to affect your game. And at the same time, you have to think about how perhaps you might, by your decisions, be able to affect other people's games. So is it, is it true then to say that uh, 18xx games maybe offer a, a larger kind of more rich decision space than other games, uh, you know, let, let me let me try to draw an example. Um, ha, are either of you gentlemen uh, familiar with the Railways of the World series? Yes, to some extent. Okay. So, you know, I think about Railways of the World, and my decisions, okay, in that game uh, do have an effect on the other players, and there is some anticipation uh, on my part of trying to figure out what the other players are going to do, but it's mostly, it seems to be, about who's going to get to a location first uh, and, and complete, say, a route or a link, or who is going to upgrade their locomotive so that they are able to then take advantage of that connection in order to deliver goods. But outside of that, uh, that there's not too much that I can think of in those sort of base train games. I'm thinking as simple as Ticket to Ride and as, if you want to call it, you know, medium weight as Railways of the World, that's kind of where that sort of player interaction seems to end, at least in my mind. But you seem to be hinting that there's actually more sort of uh, almost a codependence in the 18xx games. Is, is that true or am I missing that? No, I think I, I think that's uh, absolutely true. Um, so, the what you really tend to see is, as Eric notes, is a particular decision. It's it's a butterfly effect, really. A particular decision leads another player to make a decision, which leads another player to make a decision, and to a large extent, if you can ferret out exactly how that stream is going to go and, and what the endpoint of that stream is going to be, or even just the endpoint of that stream to the next uh, next stock round, um, you, can, you can definitely work that to your advantage. I would also say that in most 18xx games, the track that is built doesn't belong to any one player or to any one railroad. Uh, and so unlike in Railways of the World where you might build track for your railway, uh, if I build track, Joe's railway can also use that track if he's situated in such a way as to do it. And so it's in some ways a game that has cooperation, that Joe and I might both build track that helps both of us. 
perhaps to the advantage of both of us in comparison to other players in the game. And yet, I would like it to help me a little bit more than it helps him and the other way around. <laughs> so it's also a game that mixes competition with cooperation. Interesting. Okay, well, that definitely seems, you know, in some ways different from some of the other kind of rail-themed games that I've played, uh, whether it's like First Train to Nuremberg or, or something of that nature. That, you know, definitely in most of these games, the track that you build is your own. I mean, you know, you are marking it. Um, so I, I, I'm intrigued by this idea that there's actually some cooperative aspects to it. But, of course, everybody, I'm guessing, is trying to twist it ultimately to their best advantage. Um, you know, otherwise it, it kind of becomes like a, a zero-sum sort of an affair between those two players, yes? Yes, and I guess I would say many 18xx games share similarities, but they're all different from each other. So when we talk about what the series is like, we're giving you generalizations. In many or most of the games, uh, players own railways that put down stations. And so... Um, there might be some track built between Detroit and Chicago, and um, my railroad has stations there. That's going to make that track more valuable to me than to a player who does not have stations in the right place. So um, my railroad does have some geographically specific features that are different than those of Joe's railroad, but at the same time, we may very well share the same track. Right, and in fact, um, with the comparison, so... Uh, Age of Steam is, is obviously a very popular train game. Um, one of the things that always disappointed me about Age of Steam was that uh, it didn't take stronger advantage of the uh, potential uh, cooperative elements that were, were present in uh, the original uh, uh, game in, in that series, Lancashire Railways. Um, it didn't build upon that cooperative aspect, but in, instead focused on uh, on uh, other aspects of the game that I found of less interest. Interesting. And then another, Jeff, another cooperative aspect of the 18XX series is that, as you mentioned, uh, players themselves don't own trains and build track. Corporations own trains and build track. And generally speaking, uh, a corporation is owned by multiple players. So if there's a corporation in which I own 60% of the stock and Joe owns 30% of the stock and some other player owns 10% of the stock, in some ways we're automatically cooperating. If I own 60%, it's obviously to my advantage to benefit that corporation, but Joe owning 30% gets a free ride on what I do for the corporation. So there's cooperation between the companies, and at the same time there's cooperation between the shareholders of a company. Right. So this is one of the key kind of differences that, that you know, I, I kind of thought that I had uh, figured out as, as someone who is curious about the game is that this is a, indeed, it sounds like you're telling me this is a game that's more about stockholding, um, you know, in that uh, you can be invested in a number of different companies, um, you know, but not be in control of those companies. Uh, you know, you mentioned this is sort of like the, the free ride sort of effect, and, and I know that that's something that's been utilized in other games as well. Um, so it, it, is it really, truly, then, it, it's kind of like that stock sort of holding and manipulation game? Uh, it depends upon the particular implementation. So uh, certainly 1830 is very much about stock market manipulation and uh, getting out of a stock at the right time. 
uh, whereas other games in the series, and, and, and 1846 is a, a particular favorite of, of both Eric's and mine, um, the, uh, the, the emphasis is much more on uh, building effective railroads, and, um, and there, is, there are small elements of stock manipulation, but it's not the, uh, not the focus of the game. Um, it's just a, as, as Eric mentioned, a cooperative aspect in that the, uh, the shares are often uh, held um, by a subset of the players in the game um, and in different quantities where they, they get different benefits, um, but still the, uh, the player who simply owns stock is benefiting from whatever the, the president of the railroad does. Okay. All right. So uh, why don't we do this, um, if you guys don't mind? Is You know, you brought up, I, I think it was you, Joe, who, who brought up this idea that, you know, there's a difference between the 18xx sort of family of games and then specific games. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems as though, from what I've read at least, that there are sort of common threads that seem to go through most of this family of games and then those sort of core mechanics or ideas or, or, or game mechanisms are then tweaked or adjusted in some way uh, to present a, a unique sort of an experience. Uh, would you say that that's true? And if it is true, uh, can either of you perhaps identify what you feel might be the common core ideas behind 18xx uh, train games? So I would say it's true, um, but the... The common core is a limited enough subset of the the mechanisms that the the specifics of the implementation uh, are a much stronger uh, indicator of, of what the game will be like than the um, than the fact that it's an 18xx. Um, you can play multiple games in the series that have a vastly vastly different experience. I might. Use as an analogy, Jeff, uh, wargaming, which in some ways was how I got started in the hobby in 1964. And uh, if you're not a wargamer, you say, well, they're all the same. They have hexes and counters. Right. But obviously they uh, look at different historical situations and they have different rules. And more importantly, the things you focus on when you play them are different. In the same way, the 18X sex series shares certain general conventions which makes it a little bit easier for a player to learn new games in the in the genre. But the things that are important for strategic play, if you want to do well, often are quite different. So you think this then might uh, explain the proliferation of the 18xx series in that each of these new elements that's being added um, is actually resulting in a vastly different experience? Uh, it's not just new elements. That, I, that's I think part of it is um, different games take the idea in a very different direction from one another. Um, so I'll pull out a fairly recent example. Poseidon uh, was released a couple of years ago, and um, it wasn't that Poseidon built upon everything that was done to that point. It was that Poseidon took elements that had been done to that point and release thing and modify them in different ways to come up with the final final game. If you were to um, describe what most people think of as the common features of 18xx, um, 
would be uh, companies in which players own shares. Um, the person owning the most shares making the decisions for that company, but the actions of the company benefiting all the shareholders. Um, in general, um, players buy trains and operate them. As Joe was talking about Poseidon, there are not trains, there are ships. Right. Set in ancient Greeks. Another game that both Joe and I enjoy is a game called 2038, which is set in outer space. And instead of trains or ships, we have spaceships. But you can see that the common idea is there. Uh, a third thing that many people believe is generally part of 18xx is a map and building track. But you can see that if you're running ships in Poseidon in ancient Greece, you're not building track. You're doing something else. In 2038, you're flying around space and picking up and claiming mines. So if someone were to say one of the essential pieces of 18xx is track building, then we could point to some uh, examples that would prove that that's not the case. Would you say that root building would be, uh, you know, root building of some kind would be an element? Yes. <laughs> that was a nice, drawn out, yes. You don't sound like you're entirely convinced. What are you thinking? I'm, I'm just trying to come up with, so I can come up with potential counterexamples. So I, I would, uh, I, I could point to uh, railroad barons, uh, a two-player um game that basically attempts to distill some of the ideas from 18xx into a a two-player card game yes that is um, one i actually have experience with that's uh, that yeah. and poseidon um so and that's actually one of the ones that got me even more interested because it introduced this notion of of your your railroad car your your locomotives becoming antiquated and you know there, there comes a point in time where in the card game like it, it, you will lose um, you will lose your locomotives that you have been using that have been productive for you and you'll have to constantly upgrade is that something that's common in other 18xx games or no Almost all 18xx games have obsolescence. Ah, there's the word. Thank you, obsolescence. Great. And obsolescence is uh, a critical mechanism, and it's one of the things that adds depth to the game. Um, and it's also uh, the failure to appreciate is one of the things that makes it difficult for beginners to play the game sometimes in a reasonable length of time. And I'll give you an example. Let's say we're playing 1830, which is the prototype game in the United States. Actually, the first game, I believe, was 1829, uh, which was designed by Francis Tresham of England back in 1974. But uh, the most common game in the United States is 1830. And uh, you start the game with what are called two trains, and they can run two city routes, namely from one city to another city, and that's it. Uh, if we're playing the game and Joe manages to have his railroads buy more of the two trains than my railroad has, you see that all else being equal, he will earn more money. I can do something about that. I can find a way to buy a four train, which makes all of Joe's two trains obsolete. I've just turned the table over in a polite and <laughs> a game-appropriate way. If I don't realize that I need to buy a four train to kill Joe's two trains, um, he will run those two trains for a long time. It could take hours, but he's going to win the game. Right. So um, the purchase of new trains to make other trains obsolete uh, is an important game mechanism in almost all 18xx games. Some games have variations on that, but um, making the judgment as to which trains you're going to buy and when, and even more importantly, 
Am I currently winning, or is Joe currently winning, or someone else at the table? If one of the other players is winning, it's often the case that I can turn that all around by buying new trains. It might even involve a financial sacrifice in the short term for me to buy that new shiny train, but all of a sudden his trains don't work anymore. And as Eric notes, this is one of the things that can make the game go on longer than players who are new to the game expect, because as soon as... One company buys a train that causes obsolescence. Um, that, in turn, forces other companies to, to spend money. Again, I will say nearly all uh, 18xx games um, use a fixed-sized bank as the timer for the game. And so when the, the bank runs out, um, the game comes to an end shortly thereafter. Um, if companies are spending money in buying trains money is going back into the bank and the game goes um, and uh, in some cases you can actually uh, I've seen games of, of 1830 where if things had broken just a little bit differently if if had, you'd waited just a little bit longer before a train was out the bank would have broken and the game would have ended um, but because it happened before the bank broke a, a, the rush of trains um, will actually drive a huge amount of money into the uh, back into the bank and uh, cause the game to go on for for multiple additional um, series of operating rounds. Interesting. So the players have some control then, it sounds, collectively, uh, or, or perhaps even individually. You'll, you'll have to tell me whether that's the case. But it sounds like they have some control over when the game actually ends. Yes, or even the pace of the game. And again, to make an analogy, Jeff, I'm a big fan of the game Lost Cities. And some people call it multiplayer solitaire. I think to myself that I can affect whether the game goes fast or slow. And I generally know whether I want to go fast or slow. So part of that game, even though it's a two-player game, is a contest to see whether I can make it go at the speed I want or whether my opponent can make it go at the speed they want. Now, XX games are rarely two-player games. There are some exceptions. So it's not a two-player contest, but each player in an 18xx game has some control over the pace of the game. And therefore, you ask, do you individually have control? You individually have some control, um, but your opponents also have some control. So the question is, how are you all collectively going to make decisions as to how fast the game is going to go? I would like to act in my own sense and provide incentives for my opponents to make the game go at a speed that is ideal for me. Right. You're continuously adjusting. Basically, companies tend to have basic trade-off. Buy more trains, which means that they are going to likely going to cause those trains to go obsolete sooner, but make more money while they have them, or buy fewer trains, earn less money, but delay the, the obsolescence of, of the, the trains that they're buying. So that's interesting then. So then that is that is a, a another factor. It's a, a another factor that uh, it seems like, again, collectively and almost cooperatively, 
um, except for the one person who desperately wants the game perhaps to end at that time, there's this kind of, it sounds like there's this push and pull that's constantly going on uh, in, in the later stages of the game, I would imagine, where, you know, some people clearly would like it to end now because they feel the advantage is theirs, whereas other people, uh, you know, other players at the table may be looking to extend the game perhaps for them to, you know, do the, the very thing that you're talking about, you know, either uh, uh, scratch some more income out of trains that they already have, um, you know, on the table before they come obsolete, or, you know, perhaps trying to, to do that upgrade. Does, does that sound accurate? So it's definitely a factor late in the game, but um, it also is a factor uh, even earlier in the game, well before you're, you're, uh, you're looking at the end of the game, you're going to have um, some players who are very happy with the current trains that they have, you should have some other players, player or players who are not so happy with the situation who should be forcing things along so as to, to put themselves into a better situation. The specifics tend to vary a fair bit from, from game to game as well. Um, so there are some 18xx games that pretty much drive to an inevitable conclusion of reaching the final, uh, the final trains. So 1830 in most groups and most plays, um, tends not to end before you get to diesel trains, the, the, uh, the final level of trains in the game. Um, other um, 18xx games uh, will actually end before you get to that, uh, that final level of train. And really, it all depends upon uh, the particular game and um, other factors such as the number of uh, trains that you have at different levels. Um, and so this is, from a game design standpoint, one of the interesting aspects of the game is whether the rules of the game, the number of trains in the game, um, the number of uh, stations that, that companies have all work towards um, emphasizing different elements of the game, whether they... they um, 1830 is set up in such a way as to really emphasize, as I mentioned earlier, the the, uh, the stock manipulation. Um, whereas, um, if you have money coming in more slowly over time to the companies, um, and if you have elements that require um, the spending of, of capital later in the game, such you, as you have in uh, 2038. Um, you can find find things tuned more towards um, a uh, an emphasis on the effective development um, of the company, um, so that because you have a much bigger difference in uh, how effective a company that is well developed runs as compared to one that is uh, that is developed where the the uh, president spends very little money on the development. And, uh, and simply focuses on making a quick buck, as it were. One of the interesting things is, um, although there are 18xx fans, um, it's hard to find agreement among those fans about which games they enjoy. Um, some people um, will hate a given game, and other people will love it. And you will then look at a different game, and it will be exactly the opposite. Often it's because a player enjoys the stock manipulation or they enjoy the engineering or they enjoy um, some other aspect of the game. And um, 
so if you ask what is the most popular game, you could certainly look at which one has the most ratings on Board Game Geek, or you could look at the one that's rated highest, but in practice it's quite nuanced. There are wide varieties of opinions of the various games. And I think it's because of the fact, as Joe said, that each game emphasizes certain things as the keys to victory. So it looks like there's a, a little bit of something for everyone out there. Um, now, I, I've heard both of you use this term, you know, uh, running, uh, you know, a, a company that's being run effectively. Um, what What is it in an 18xx game? Pick any of the ones that, you know, you've discussed. What is it that would make a company effective because you, you, you're using that term and, and for someone maybe like myself who's looking to get into these games what are you supposed to do like what what makes you effective as the sort of director of a company as the you know the, the majority shareholder well it depends on the game but the two ways that you gain by owning a company in 18xx are collecting the dividends that the company pays and benefit from the, benefiting from the stock appreciation. In most of the games, um, the winner is the one with the most net worth at the end of the game, and net worth is typically calculated as the cash that you have plus the market value of all your stocks. In some games, the dividends are very important. In other games, the stock value is more important. So that if you look, for example, at 1830, um, often it's the stock value consistently driving upward turn after turn that's the key. In other games, as Joe is saying, for example, 2038, um, a company whose stock value did not drive relentlessly upward the game, but that pays out big dividends to the end, might in fact be better. And so um, effective running of a company is a combination of uh, paying out good dividends and driving the stock value upward. That's difficult to do because... In order to count dividends and drive the stock upward, you have to have trains. And in order to have trains, you've got to spend money on them. And when you spend money on the trains, um, where is that money going to come from? Often you have to not pay dividends in order to buy trains. And if you don't pay dividends in most of these games, the stock value goes down. So another one of the decision points of the game is when do I pay dividends and allow my stock price to go up? And when do I save the dividends in the company? and buy a better train, which is going to help me in the future. So uh, it sounds as though you know running a company effectively and, and, and the other things that you're talking about in the game are precisely the kinds of things that have always made me a little bit nervous about 18xx games and that you know they, they are somewhat complex and and I think the complexity isn't so much in the rules you know I, I've played Poseidon I, I know I interrupted you Joe sorry about uh, railroad barons but you know I've played those, and it's not so much that the rules are difficult, it's that there, there there's a lot of subtlety in these games, and there's a lot of nuance, and, and I found in my limited experience that a lot of it does have to do with what you guys are talking about, which is timing. You know, the timing of when you do things, and those decisions that you're talking about of, you know, do I pay out the dividends, which drives the share price up, or do I hold that money back and, and pay basically the company um, so that the company has money then to invest in improvements uh, that will, in long term, make the company more profitable and perhaps more attractive. That will, you know, 
know, gain more income for the players who are invested in it. So there, there's a lot of subtlety and nuance I kind of feel in these styles of games, and, and it's something that I kind of feel is a, a bit of a barrier to entry. I know it, it's that way for me, and I know when I've tried to introduce these games to some of my gaming uh, uh, friends who... You know, they're they're not just light Euro gamers. I mean, we, we play some heavier fare as well on a pretty regular basis, but we're all a little intimidated by 18xx. So what would you say would be your advice, gentlemen, to, to someone who's looking to maybe get involved in this, this family of games as far as, you know, what games might you recommend to get started, uh, you know, perhaps with different player counts? Uh, I know, for example, I'm looking at 1860 as one that that I've heard is recommended for two players, since my primary gaming partner is my wife. Um, but not just the the games that you would suggest, but you know, what are some sort of overarching kind of ideas that you or advice that you would give to new players? Um, what would you say to uh, uh, someone like that? Well, the first thing is that you got to get in there and try games. Um, the games make a lot of sense just on the face of them. You start a railroad, you buy trains, you build track, you lay stations, you pay dividends, the stock goes up. Um, don't be afraid of doing that. I do think that once you do that, things will start happening. And you will say, I didn't realize when I made that decision uh, just a little while ago that this was going to happen. If you're a player who likes to be able to calculate everything out, precisely and make no mistakes in a game, you might think that the 18xx series is ideal because in many of the 18xx games, there's no luck. Two of Joe and I's favorite games, uh, 2038 and 1846, have a little bit of luck in them. But in some ways, the butterfly effect is quite strong in these games. The decision of another player has enough of an effect on your game that you thought you knew what you were doing, but their decision made the game very different in a short amount of time. Don't be thrown off by that. It's a game that requires you to have a solid strategic understanding of what you're trying to do, but also it requires you to be tactically flexible and deal with the situation that you find yourself in. One of Joe's strongest characteristics is the ability to come up with a plan no matter what situation he finds himself in. And it's kind of charming to see him do that sometimes. Another thing is that not every 18xx game is alike. I'll just tell you my experience. Um, I played a few games of 1830 way back when it came out in 1986 or 1987, and I didn't like the game very much at all. Perhaps, um, perhaps it was... Um, the decisions I made didn't work out, but I just didn't like the game very much. And so I avoided playing 18xx games uh, for over 20 years because I thought I didn't like them. Um, more recently with Joe and some others, I got reintroduced and I played games other than 1830, in particular 1846, and I loved the game. I still don't care very much for 1830, and I like some of the other games. So don't play one game, then conclude that you don't like the series. Um, it might be that you would like a different game in the series. The other thing I would say is um, I could make a recommendation as to what game you might want to learn. Um, but um, if there's people that you're with, um, play the games that they want to play. You know, it's sort of uh, no notable that people in England seem to like 1829, which is a game that's set in England. 
1825, which is a game that's set in England. People in the United States seem to like games set in the United States. In Germany, they like a game called 1835, which is set in Germany. It's only natural that people might like games that are set in geographies that they're familiar with. But then the other thing is um, experience makes a lot of difference in these games. I think the modern Euro game is almost built on the hypothesis that a smart person can sit down and win their first game and be on an equal footing with everyone else. Now, I certainly play 18xf games with people that win their first game, but I don't think anyone should expect that they're going to win their first game. I win my first game, but I came out of it saying, I'm just amazed at how that worked. And I see how some of my decisions uh, turn out. I want to play that game again, do something different, and see how it turns out the next time. Uh, the game that I've played most in the series is uh, 1846, which is my favorite. I've played it over 80 times. And every time we play, somehow the game turns out different. And it's in some ways addictive to say, what's it going to be like this time? So I first uh, was introduced to 18xx in 1995. I started uh, attending a game group um, locally that, at the time, uh, played um, not quite exclusively 18xx, but that was a very large portion of, of the, uh, um, the game that they played, and in particular played 18 um, so my very first experience playing 18xx was playing 1830 um, with a group of um, gamers who were all very, very familiar with it, very good at the game, and I got crushed and came back to play the next time, and I got crushed. Um, and I actually think that in many ways um, that's certainly for me was, was an ideal way to learn the game because it emphasized uh, one of the aspects that uh, Eric mentioned, which is um, these games definitely strongly reward experience. And really, if you, if, as long as you don't mind working through getting yourself to the point that you get better at the game, um, I think that playing with other experienced players, playing whatever 18xx game it is that that they like and enjoy and are playing at the time um, is really an ideal way to um, to learn the games and get better at the games and it really took me many 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 plays of 18xx um, before I could hold my own at the game um, and a number more than that before I actually won the game but um, that was a um, for me, a positive experience because um, one of the things that, that bothers me with games that are, are called highly strategic is if I can play against experienced players and win right away, um, that is, is definitely a significant count against the game um, for me. And so um, I have seen people new to 18xx playing with experienced players, all providing help and doing okay. Um, but uh, for, for folks who you know are looking for the help, for folks who want to do it on their own, I don't recall having seen someone win in that situation where they weren't, weren't getting lots of help from the, the more experienced players. But um, that really, I think, is, is one, of the, one of the great strengths of the game, uh, certainly for me, is is the fact that that uh, 
it takes some significant amount of play um, to be able to play well against experienced players. So this is kind of that return on investment, which has popped up uh, as, as sort of a common thread on, on several of the episodes uh, with people that I've talked with. So you feel that this is a game that rewards the effort and the time that you put into it. Um, and, and therefore gives you more satisfaction than a game perhaps that, you know, right out of the box, uh, the strategies are, are fairly evident and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fine game. It's a fun way to pass some time, but it's, it's not anything that, that you're particularly invested in because there's not really that sort of work that's required in order to learn enough about the game in order to become proficient with it. Is, is that accurate? Uh, not quite. And okay. All right. Let me. Let me. So, you're you're making you're making a a comparison. The thing that is rewarding you you have the reward of the game. I think accurately described. There are games that are quick to play, fun to play. Mm-hmm. Um, that you can pick up the strategy on right away. That are very rewarding in a very different way than than eighteen XX. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't point to it as a such a black and white issue of oh games that games that require learning the strategy and whatnot are better or superior right yeah yeah to 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 something um, such as oh let me think oh King of Tokyo for right. instance yeah is a fine game that's fun that that really um, you pick up you play the first time and you could well win um, I don't see it as a an advantage of one type of game versus the other. What I, what I see is there are games that are purported to be deeply strategic that tend to have that randomness as to who wins that you might expect in something more like King of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And 18xx does not have that. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, uh, thank you for, for uh, correcting me on that because, you know, I, I don't... I don't want to make it sound like game snobbery. I mean, that, that's, that's not what I meant. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the, the, the rewards that you get from playing other games uh, can be equally valuable, certainly. Uh, and again, you know, it depends on the people you're playing with, the context, and what you as the player are looking for at the time. What I, what I kind of meant by the return on investment, though, is that there does seem, at least to my mind, to be this sort of, there's a, there's a, a certain sort of almost class of games, a, a, a group of games, that uh, are, are fairly rigorous and for and, and war games I would put in that category uh, you know I don't know how many times I've tried to sit down and play a war game with my friend Justin uh, who, who's appeared on the on the show before and you know he just cleans my clock and it's not because I'm a bad gamer it's just that he has such a wealth of experience in the games that were that that we're playing that you know I really am I, I'm still in the, the position of trying to learn the game and climb the hill so that I can get to the top and actually see what it is I'm supposed to be doing. And so there's a lot of stumbling around for me. Um, but it makes it very rewarding when you finally get there 
uh, there's there's kind of a feeling of accomplishment that I get from those kinds of games. That that's the return on investment I'm talking about. That I don't necessarily get from playing something lighter like King of Tokyo or you know Dominion or something of that nature. So uh, I, I agree with you that that you know we're not talking that one's necessarily better than the other, but there are I, I would argue some games that just require a lot of time and effort in order to become proficient with them. And it sounds like you know these are are, are games that would fit into that category, and that also is is something that as as a person looking to get into it and from being on the outside, this is one of the things that's very intimidating about these games because uh, you know it, as a player as a new player, I know that you know sometimes you are terrified of making the horrible choice that everyone else at the table was expecting you. You know, Eric talks about this sort of trying to predict what your opponents are going to do. And, you know, being an experienced player, you have a pretty good notion of what that person should do. But then the new player, like myself, say, for example, does something that's completely counterintuitive to that because I don't really understand what I'm doing yet. And then you kind of hear that groan at the table, you know, where where people are kind of like, oh, you know, why did you do that? And, and that's something that, you know, I think is a concern to me and to other players that, you know, you don't want to um, do something that's going to have that butterfly effect that could end up being uh, potentially devastating for other players who actually know what they're doing because you just sort of made a mistake. At the same time, you would like to think you're playing with people who are going to be kind enough to give you some guidance. Um, but, but that's not always true, I think. And one of the, the reasons that I'm making that statement is because, you know, there have been times when I've, like, posted on Board Game Geek, for example, on forums kind of asking questions or seeking advice. And for everyone out there, like you two gentlemen, it seems like there's there's others out there who are not quite as welcoming and sort of seem to be very haughty and kind of... Uh, dismissive of some of the questions that new people might ask, you know, almost like, you know, you're asking something that's incredibly obvious and stupid. Well, if you haven't ever really played that or had that come up before, you might not know. So there's some of these barriers to entry that I feel are, are kind of out there. And I'm just curious, you know, whether that's just a construct in my own mind or whether you think there's some validity to that. What, what would you say? Okay, you, you covered a, a number of different topics there. Yes. <laughs> let me let me let me answer the last one first because I've got the quick answer to that, which is they're definitely I mean for any particular game, there are people who take it very seriously and are looking for other people who take it very seriously and that's fine. Those might not be the people to go to. Um I enjoy playing bridge. Um I play bridge with people who do not play bridge very seriously. Um, and I really enjoy that, and I, I tend to just avoid the the very serious bridge players. Um, even though I love the game, I love studying the game. I I've, I've played bridge more than I've played anything else um, since I started uh, recording my gameplays, or even before them. Um, the other thing that I note is um, the, you you talked about a, a fear of making mistakes. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy have, have enjoyed about 1846 is finding out just how many mistakes I can make. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, you know, I'll, I will go into 
I won't go into most games, but I will in particular go into 1846 and um, try and figure out what is what is this mistake that I can can make this game that's going to be interesting and can I make it actually work? Um, sometimes this involves doing silly things. Sometimes this involves doing something that probably is silly but I've, you know, I've never seen it done before. Well, let's see what happens. Um, but that's one of the things that for me is, is a great advantage of this series is there is so much room to explore the game space um, that these games put up with um, many, many plays. Um, I'm going to come back to 1830. 1830 is a game that I got tired of after something on the order of a dozen or 15 plays because I'm mostly playing 18xx with the same group of players. And And 1830 has a tendency within any particular group to follow similar play patterns. Um, And so I don't play 1830 a lot anymore, but when I do play 1830, I tend to play it with groups that I don't generally play with because I will see things done in different ways, and that helps make the game fresh. And they will see things done in different ways when they play with you. Oh, absolutely. Um, And this is one of the things that, for me the games that really stand out in the series are the ones that allow for a, a just a, an enormous exploration of the game space. So uh, 1846, I played uh, over 100 times, and we're still exploring the game space. By, you know, no means done with that. Uh, 2038 um, still is, is... 2038 is actually my very favorite in the series, and um, I've played that sometimes and uh, very much still exploring the game space there. Um, and while there are fun light games, things like For Sale, that you can rack up 100 plays and and still have fun with, you've explored the game space by that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, 18xx, um, the games that I enjoy tend to be the ones where I'm really having fun continuing to explore the game space. So what is it about the the, the game space? In other words, uh, you know, it it really is truly impressive if the game holds up to that repeated play and and continues to offer you the kinds of new experiences and and choices. Um, What do you attribute it to, though? Do you attribute it to the game and and the game design, or do you attribute it to the players and the interaction between the players? Because it almost sounds like it's more player-dependent than it is game-dependent. Is is there any truth to that, do you think? Um... There is some amount of truth to that, but I think it's more game-dependent. So I will I'll get into, into very specific detail relative to 1846. Okay. Um, so most 18xx games have very little uh, randomness in them. Uh, there are exceptions. Um, 1846, uh, the only randomness is um, in the uh, private companies that are drafted um, to, to start the game. Um, but you have, so with different numbers of players, you have different numbers of private companies in play, uh, always um, two per player in the game. But all of these different companies combine with each other in interesting ways and also combine with the railroad companies in interesting ways. Um, 
leading to um, just an enormous number of possibilities, um, not to mention some other um, interesting uh, choices within the, the uh, uh, track laying portion of the game, um, some interesting uh, choices in terms of how you're aiming for destinations that, um, as I say, we've, you know, having played a hundred times, I have no idea, even playing with the same group of people, what's going to happen the next time um, that I play. Yeah, I would uh, go back to answer one of the questions you asked about um, players being critical of each other. Uh, It can happen in some groups. I would say, in my experience, it's nothing like what you get in Puerto Rico, where sometimes you fail to take the trader and everybody glares at you. Yeah, <laughs> or you you play the craftsman and everybody sighs loudly. Um, so um, I, I know what that's like. Yeah, so do I. That's 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 one of the things. You know, it's funny you mentioned Puerto Rico because that is one of the things that went through my mind. You know that that's another game where people seem to have a, a pretty good idea. And, and if you're a, if you're a new player, you can seriously mess things up for other people at the table without even intending to. And, you know, I think most new players aren't looking to do that. You're not looking to mess up other people. You're trying to learn the game, experience it, have some fun, and, you know, hopefully uh, be in the competitive mix. So, um, but, but you don't find that too often, though, with, in your experience with 18xx games? It depends, I think, partly in the games that you play. If you were to do this podcast 10 times with 20 different people, you would get completely different opinions about what games they like. And so you have to take the comments that Joe and I make with a grain of salt. We're, we're trying to be objective here. Uh, one of the reasons I think we both like 1846 is it's not a completely deterministic game. As Joe says, it starts out with a draft. Uh, maybe if I give you an example, not too dissimilar to how Seven Wonders works, where you're passing a set of cards around. Um, you may play a game in, in our group. It takes two hours to play 1846, another reason we like it. But the, the card draft might take five minutes. And all that does is it randomizes the game in such a way that we've distributed among four players these eight private companies, probably in a way that we've never distributed them before. And now we each have to figure out what are we going to do with these. Um, we like the game because there generally isn't an obvious move. Uh, I claim that for beginners, you'd rather play a game where there's no obvious move than one where there's an obvious move. Because if there's an obvious move, as you say, Greg, people might all sigh if you don't make it. That's true. Um, yeah. When there's Sorry, Jeff. Yes. Um, when no, there's no, no obvious move, well, it's hard for anybody to sigh because nobody really <laughs> knows what the right thing for you to do was anyway. So, so then it really isn't then most of these 18xx games you're saying that at least the ones that you're speaking of at the moment, um, you know, it's not like one of the. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question because I, I, I like what you're saying about this idea between there being sort of obvious moves and an almost perfect information kind of a game, and uh, non-obvious moves or, or, or things that aren't necessarily as clear, uh, and, and that the game sort of has to evolve before people start to get an idea of, you know, where they want to try to push things. Um, you know, I think about, like, one of my first experiences with a stock-style game would have been Chicago Express. And, you know, one of the things that... that I really tired of quickly with that game, which, you know, is a very simple kind of a stock game, is is the fact that it seemed like 
in the route building portion of the game, there were definitely these sort of optimal routes and optimal things. And after playing it for a while, over and over, it, it sort of morphed into this very same sort of experience where everybody sort of ran the companies in the same direction, in the same way, and the game started to play out the same. But you're saying that with you know uh, the, the the randomization of the setup at the start and uh, with the board sp- uh, the the the, the decision space provided by the board that that doesn't happen with these games there's not optimal sort of connections and routes that are obvious that you know everyone's going to be going for it, it, there, there's more variety than that it depends on the game so um you know uh one of the things that people say about 1930 for example is you should always part your first company at 67 dollars, and you should always part your second company at a hundred dollars i don't i'm not enough of an expert on that game to tell you but in some ways, I think, if that's what you should always do, what's the point of giving players a choice? Um, I would rather have games where um, there's no uh, obvious thing to do, and you try something and see. But I would add also that um, in some games that are complex, you make a decision, and the game doesn't turn out to be one that you do well in, and you really don't know what it is that you did. Typically in these games... Um, you see the mechanism by which your decision turned out well or poorly. Um, you, you know, you, you do this, and, and this happens, and you think, yeah, I could have seen that that was going to happen, uh, at least for me. I, I at least have some insight into what I did after I do it. But I think some of that comes with experience. Some of that so comes with experience. If, if you, this is one, this is yet another of the reasons that, that my biggest suggestion relative to learning these games is play them with people who already know the game, because... Um, I think certainly for me, initially, I didn't know what I had done, but the players who were more experienced could tell me. And over time, I came to understand, ah, this is this is what I did that that, uh, that hurt me. Um, and um, I might still do that again because I want to see if I can can make things come out in a different way. But um, I at least know what my mistake that I'm making uh, is. So um, uh, to give a a very specific example, uh, we played 1846 uh, this Monday, a five-player game, and uh, the specific mistake that I made was during the um, initial uh, distribution of the privates, um, I picked up uh, three private companies, uh, leaving me with just $150, and specifically went from there to uh, starting a company and dumping it, which is generally a good idea in 1846, but I wanted to give it a try. And it worked out about as I expected it to, um, but it was still a path that I hadn't followed and, and wanted to see if I could uh, could make to work. So exploring those sorts of... So it sounds as though even though you understood that you know the the move that you made might not have been optimal in the your your lack of capital after the initial distribution of the private companies you still ran with it and it sounds like you you enjoy kind of playing with those possibilities and saying well can i make this work anyway it's absolutely yeah yeah no it was a bad choice there was there was no question about it it was a bad decision um and I compounded my bad decision, making a second bad decision, um, and that was fun. Um, 
you know, I, I tried to see if I could pull it off. I completely failed to pull it off. Um, I finished fourth in the five-player game, and I had a great time. I think what Joe might be saying is this may not be a series that's for you if you're a perfectionist, mm. and you have to never, ever make a mistake. Um, you know, it could be disappointing. If you like trying things and seeing how they work, and if they don't work so well, uh, working out a plan to deal with that, uh, it might be an excellent series for you. That's really interesting because, you know, my my personal impression of 18xx games, if you ask me, was, you know, highly cerebral, highly mathematical, highly uh, strategic in that, you know, almost chess-like, like I'm, I'm thinking two, four, six, ten moves ahead, you know, what am I going to do, um, you know, and, and very sort of, uh, um, and it sounds as though you're actually in many ways describing something that's exactly the opposite, you know, you're, you're describing uh, sort of uh, experimentation being something that you really enjoy uh, as players in this particular series because you can't predict everything that's going to happen. You can't know how everything's going to work out. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons that I wanted to do this is, is because of exactly this kind of thing. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm the only one that has those preconceptions about 18xx games. And so uh, I'm really encouraged to hear that, you know, you gentlemen at least seem to derive a lot of joy in these games just from playing with possibilities and, and trying something new, um, you know, just, just to see where it takes you and to see where it leads. Um, do you think that that's, that might be an explanation as to why these games seem to enjoy such a, a vast following and seem to have longevity? Well, for me it is. Um, I will add that anyone that uh, likes to plan 10 moves ahead, um, <laughs> if you play with Joe, uh, they'll soon uh, have to give that plan up because um, he often does things uh, that surprise people. I, I also do things that surprise people. You know, um, I, I can find that I'm a move and other people at the table look very puzzled and think, why did you do that? And sometimes uh, my turns out to be a disaster, but sometimes it turns out to be something that retrospectively is brilliant and uh i think perhaps that experimentation is is what makes it fun for me i can't speak for everyone but the other thing i would say is that um often in this game you get yourself into a situation where you really can't tell whether you have a to winning uh, certainly there are surprise victories but if you have to believe all through every game you play that you're going to win um I don't know. It's pretty hard for me to see how you can enjoy the hobby. I, I like to try to play to do the best that I can, give myself the best chance of winning. But sometimes it's not going to work. Um, I played a game of a prototype um, just in April, at which one of my fellow players, after the game, expressed an observation about my play, and he said, uh, "Eric, you were like an airplane in an uncontrolled dive. <laughs> somehow, um, you managed to pull up on the joystick and avoid hitting the ground." And I think I finished with a score that may have been 60% of the score of the winner, which is a pretty bad result in 18xx. But, you know, I had a good time because I almost went bankrupt, and I survived. And it was interesting to see how could I survive. If you're a player that only plays to win, you might say that was a pointless game uh, because you knew that you weren't going to win. You just spent your entire game trying to avoid bankruptcy. But, you know, it was a challenge, and I had fun doing it. Now, there are definitely 
players prefer to play 18xx as a very cerebral game, as a very quiet, you know, thinking as far ahead as I possibly can. Um, and I've, I've seen games of 18xx played like that, uh, but it doesn't have to be played like that, certainly. Um, really very much dependent upon uh, the people that you're playing it with. Um, we frequently will find that um, during a, a game of uh, 1846, just because that gets uh, gets played a lot at the, the Monday night gaming group that, uh, that we both go to, um, that you'll get fits of uh, peals of laughter uh, breaking out. And, and it's um, just because, you know, someone did something funny or uh, made a bad joke or whatever, you know, whatever the case was. Um, but uh, very much a, a casual approach to it. Um, I know there, you know, I've seen other groups that, um, you know, I, it's it's that it's that picture um, I get of, of bridge players shooing away a kibitzer because it will break their concentration, um, and so I think for um, you know assuming that one gets into eighteen X is enjoying it, one of the things that you have to decide is what kind of group are you looking for as, as you get experience with the game. Um, it's possible to find eighteen XX experiences. Um, all of the map, depending upon what you're looking for. Are there are there any recommendations that either of you would have as far as player count goes? As far as like, are, are there certain 18xx games that you would recommend with certain numbers of players? Uh, sure. So, um, in general, um, I don't find 18xx works with two um, because the um, because of the stock ownership uh, issue, I, I just don't find it a compelling game. I've, I've never played a two-player 18xx game that that, that I found compelling. Um, I don't find that the game tends to work very well with um, six players, but the reason that I say that is that, in general, um, six-player 18xx games tend to require players to work cooperatively um, in order to um, to found a company, um, certainly 1830. That's that is essentially a required play style for uh, for 1830 uh, with six players, and that's just not my thing particularly. Um, with three, four, or five, there really are just a, a huge number of choices. So I enjoy 18EU with any of those numbers. I enjoy 1846 with any of those numbers. Uh, 2038 is, is generally better with three or four. Um, 1829 uh, Mainline is a, a very odd 18xx um, that's definitely not for everyone, where um, the shares that you get to buy are randomly dealt to you. It's sort of a combination of 18xx and rummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or, if, or if you play the, the one or two-player versions, a combination of 18xx and Klondike Solitaire. Yes. Um, it... Uh, you know, but that plays, uh, for me, plays well with three, four uh, players. Um, Poseidon, uh, I think, is is good with uh, three to five. Um, really, and so you know, most of them. That the, the sweet spot for the game for me is three or four. Some of them handle five well, um, and with 
more than five, well, you play two games, uh, two three-player games, and, and with less than three, um, honestly, there are so many good two-player-only games out there that um, the fact that 18xx doesn't happen to be one of them for me really isn't a problem. Excellent. I would agree with Joe. I would say that if you want to play a two-player game, um, a game from what's known as the 1829 family is probably the right one. You've mentioned 1860. Another one is 1825, uh, particularly Unit 2. But um, but if you really want to get the 18xx experience, you probably ought to aim for three players. The other thing I would say is if you've got a group of all new players, and certainly some people start that way, um, I would keep the player count low just to reach the overhead. And, uh, you know, I... I would try to pick a game that plays relatively quickly. Another thing I mention is that the games are not widely available in standard commercial productions. So 1830, after many, many years out of print, has just been reprinted. Uh, many people like that game. Poseidon is, is professionally printed. But the, the market currently is so small that you don't have dozens of 18xx games available from big publishers. And so, in some cases, availability will affect your uh, decisions. There is a guy named John Tamplin, who uh, runs a company called Deep Thought Games, uh, who makes games, but they're made in his kitchen. They're beautiful productions, uh, but he has a waiting list. So one thing I tell people who are interested in these games is that you can put an order in to Deep Thought Games. It might take a year for the game to come, but he doesn't charge you until he's ready to ship the game. And if you decide at that point you don't want it, you can cancel your order. It's sort of a no-lose proposition. But if you want a copy of 1846, which is the game I've been talking about, you've kind of got to get it uh, either by buying it from someone or by waiting for a copy. If you want to play um, a commercially available game, Poseidon certainly is a workable game. Um, 1830, many people like. I'm perhaps prejudiced against it. Uh, but you have to balance what game you want to play against what game can you easily obtain? Right. One of the one of the games that, that um, I do not know if it's still commercial, if, if it's still uh, readily available or not, but but that was first commercially Steam Over Holland. Um, it is one of the shortest uh, 18xx games. Um, for me, it didn't offer a compelling experience. It was it was interesting to play once, okay, to play a second time, and and I was done with it. But for someone who's not played 18xx before, it might be an interesting way. And in fact, I, I know folks who use it as a a teaching game, a way to uh, to introduce uh, new players to the series. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for those recommendations because, you know, again, the, the number of choices seems kind of daunting. But I have also noticed uh, what, you know, what, what Eric was talking about, which is that many of these games are just not available. Um, and so that, that's kind of a nice segue into one of the other points um, that, that, you know, I wanted to look at is, you know, what would you gentlemen, other than, you know, availability, what are the problems with 18xx games? Are there, are there any things that you're not happy with? Are there any things that you wish were, you know, perhaps different, if not in the family of games, because that's kind of too broad of a topic, but with, a, you know, a specific uh, game in general. Like one of the things that pops into to my mind is many of the 18xx games that, that I've kind of looked at online, um, you know, the, the, the components are not what 
I would expect as a Euro gamer in many of these games. Like, for example, I've looked at, like, 18AL and, and some of these others that are kind of almost print-and-play or that somebody else has kind of taken on and, and developed, you know, their, their own version of it. Um, there's a gentleman who did the 18AL one. I, I can't remember his name. It's, um, But, I mean, it, it looks gorgeous. But, again, it's something you kind of have to manufacture yourself. I mean, you can't just, as you said, go out and buy it. Um, and, and so, you know, I guess my, my question is, you know, I, I, you're looking at a very intriguing game system, a very intriguing family of games that, you know, I, I'm positive I'm not the only one out there that's interested in them. And yet it seems daunting to try to even find yourself a copy of something other than, you know, the 1830, which was just reprinted. Or I think there's the what's the Rails of India. I, I'm trying to remember. What, 1853. Yeah, 1853, which I think was reprinted, but didn't seem to get a lot of positive buzz when, when that came out, and, and the ratings are kind of mediocre on it. Um, you know, are, are there – what would you all say to that as far as, like, you know, the, the general component kind of quality and the – you know, are there any other issues that you have with the games in general as people who are uh, very fond of the series? So – the biggest general issue with the game is the amount of time that it takes to play it. Um, so uh, Eric mentioned we we tend to play 1846 with three or four players. We we uh, we can easily finish a game in two hours, but that is fairly unusual for for most groups, I think. Um, and we're still talking about hour and a half, two hours, um, which is does not. Uh, compare very favorably with with uh, most of the the, uh, the European or, or German games. One of the other considerations I think in our group is that we don't feel that we have to play perfectly. That enables us to play a little bit faster. People criticize the graphics. You mentioned that they don't look exactly like uh, Euro game graphics. I would say that because the games have some complexity it's important that the graphics be as clear as possible. Often in a modern Euro game, you have a lot of decoration on the components. If you look at an 18xx game, a typical 18xx game will have yellow track tiles. They're hexagons. They're yellow, and they have a straight or curved black line representing the track. And some people have thought, well, that's kind of dull. Uh, couldn't we put some shadowing on it or some, some nice decoration to make it look a little snazzier? And I think the problem is um, if you're going to play a game and you're going to make the decisions in and, and, and a reasonable amount of time, you'd like it to be absolutely as clear as possible. Um, I gave the example that baseball might be prettier if the baseballs had put nuts on them, but it also might be harder for the batters to see all. And, and that's what I would say is in some cases that stripped-down graphics that you see is not there simply because the artist couldn't think of anything else but because you don't want excess uh, graphics to get in the way of really being able to understand the game. So you're saying that's more of an intentional kind of a design choice, you feel, rather than uh, something that, uh, you know, is a weakness. Uh, it it kind of calls to mind for me. It seems like I can't do an episode of the show without bringing up Dominant Species, so I'll bring it up. 
the first edition of Dominant Species had very simple, clean graphic design to it, which I still prefer for precisely the same reason that you're talking about, which is that the the game state uh, on that board is so complex that as soon as you start mucking it up with prettier designs and pictures, it just makes the board harder to read. So you're saying that you feel that's very much the same thing with 18xx games? Yes, I do. You know, perhaps my favorite board game is Medici, and it has suffered from a long string of graphics failures. Um, I think it's come out in at least three and perhaps four editions, all of which try to make it an extremely pretty game. And, um, you know, sometimes you just want a card that you can read clearly from the other side of the table. And I think with 18xx, you've got players sitting around a map, um, not every player is right next to every spot of the map. Sometimes you have to see very clearly the track at the other side of the map from you. Uh, you want it to be as clear as possible. Joe, would you have anything to add? Like if in a perfect world, if you had the ability to change something about 18xx games in general, other than the playtime, uh, you know, it sounds like, uh, you know, my, my comments about the graphics, you know, Eric wouldn't change that even if he could, and, and he made a compelling argument for that. Is there anything that you would change uh, about the games or how they're played? Uh, would change about them? Not uh, not as a general thing. I mean, certainly, certainly there are 18xx games that I would specifically change, but... Um, there's not a there's not a simple oh no I wish all 18xx games did this and part of that is uh, just a result of the fact that there are so many different you know we're not talking about five games or ten games right. we're, we're talking about hundreds of games right. and for me there you know when I think of 18xx I think of the the games in the series that I really like and that have therefore implemented whatever changes I might think of that that, uh, uh, that I would find enjoyable. And so um, I think for any individual, there's for any individual who likes the general idea of an economic game of, of this uh, of this depth, there's probably a specific game that they're going to to be able to find and enjoy. The thing I would change is I would make some of the games that I really like commercially available in large printings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that my friends could buy them more easily. Yeah, that that sounds like something that uh, I, I would wish for as well. I mean, you know, you, you've piqued my interest in a number of things, and, and it's kind of disappointing to hear that, you know, oh, this is a great game, but you're not going to be able to find it. Um, but, you know, that that's just the nature of the beast. Um, the, the only other criticism that I've ever heard about 18xx games, and, and I found this in Poseidon, and I found this in Railroad Barons, um, is that is, do you find that it's true that the end game of an 18xx game tends to become math the game? Like the, the, It seemed like I always ended up getting to a point, those last couple of operation rounds, where it's just like, okay, you know, we know the game is going to end, we can see that it's ending, and everyone's just kind of cranking out uh, you know, their dividends and... 
you know, it, it, it just kind of became a number crunching thing at the very end. And, you know, after all of this tremendous buildup, this, this feeling of uh, expanding and the tug of war, the push and pull, you know, that, that I got playing those games, um, it always seemed to, at the very end, kind of just the last one or two operation rounds just seemed to be kind of almost just a mathematical exercise. Is that just my experience? Is that maybe something that I'm doing wrong? Or do you find that that's true? And if it is true, do you believe that's a problem or does it not bother you? So the problem that anyone who wants to design an 18xx is finding the right endpoint where most of the time the game is ending shortly after the last meaningful decisions are being made. Um, there are games that do a better job of that in general. There are games that do a worse job of it in general. Um, the good news is that once you get to that point, running out the remainder of the game on a spreadsheet, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about a computer spreadsheet, a piece of paper, whatever, running the remainder of the game out on a spreadsheet shouldn't take more than about five minutes. Um, and I definitely recommend uh, taking that approach uh, once you've reached that point uh, because you'll finish, you'll get through that last bit more quickly. But it's it really is a challenge because, among other things, designers are not going to be able to completely accurately predict how their games are going to be played. And so if a designer... Um, sets the bank up to be too small, um, what might end up happening is the game ends not just earlier, but much, 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 much earlier, and you'll get people complaining, oh, we didn't get out of uh, phase two in the game, and, and, and it's not a good game as a result. Um, and um, so, you know, it's, it's a question of trying to set that uh, bank size so as to cause the game to have the right ending point and not go on through, you know, the experience that you mentioned, where, where the last uh, couple sets of operating rounds are purely, uh, uh, purely run the company, pay out, move forward, and there's and there's nothing really, nothing else going on. And it's partly the players. Um, some people can agonize over the last dollar, and it's true that that last dollar might matter in one out of a hundred games. And some people could say, okay, we see how this is going. As Joe said, let's just do a spreadsheet for the last three rounds and we'll be done. And you don't, uh, that, that, doesn't, uh, that, that doesn't impact your enjoyment of the game, that, that sort of automaticity that kind of creeps in at the end there? I think I would prefer to have less of it. But uh, as Joe said, some games have more of it than others. And um, I tend to enjoy games that have less of that automatic phase. But... When it has an automatic phase, I like some of those games. Uh, again, we'll try to move through that pretty quickly and say, okay, this company is paying out $34 a share. It's going to do it three more times. That's $102 a share. Right. Let's not actually sit down and do it three times. Right, right. Yeah, and, and so, you know, maybe again, you know, you, you brought up again uh, this idea of, you know, people who agonize. Uh, you know, over every little decision, you know, again, I, I, that flies in the face of my, my mental preconceptions of the game, you know, which would be, you know, heavy analysis. And it sounds like you gentlemen, at least, are recommending, you know, not 
not playing it that way, not trying to, you know, squeeze every, you know, ounce of profit, but just just play the game. You know, that's something that uh, Eric Martin was talking about when I, I did an episode with him on innovation, which actually I think uh, uh, released today, the day I'm recording this, you know, is he talked about sometimes you just want to you just need to play the game and not worry about whether or not that was the optimal thing for you to do. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with him on that. And it sounds like you two are coming from that same perspective. But there is a large contingent of gamers out there, my wife being one of them, um, you know, that, that really want to make the best move. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people who are prone to AP, that, that sort of analysis paralysis, are doing that not to be a pain, not because they are uh, trying to slow a game down or ruin the experience, but because they, they don't want to make that mistake. And, you know, you all said that earlier, you know, don't be afraid to make mistakes in these games and just sort of ride, you know, ride the ride, you know, uh, just, just have the experience. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's really something that is very different for me to hear uh, about this kind of family of games. And, and I actually find that kind of refreshing. So, if anything, it makes me a little more excited, uh, you know, to try, uh, to try them out. So, uh, gentlemen, is, is there anything else that, uh, you know, you feel that you would like to say about 18xx games, either to new players or old players, uh, you know, newbies, uh, experienced players, anything else that, you know, you would like to share about this kind of family of game to people like me who maybe don't have a lot of experience with it? Get in there and try something. Pick a pick a topic that interests you. If you're interested in India, then do India. And if you're interested in the United States, do the United States. Um, don't agonize. Um, you know, as Joe said, we can play a game of 1846 in two hours. I've seen reports of people that play it in eight hours, although I don't know how that is. And, you know, I'd rather play four games, making a few mistakes, than playing one game, trying to be perfect, because I know I'm not going to be perfect anyway. Maybe that's just me. Right. The reality, the reality in most of these games is, you, the mistakes that you make are not going to. The small mistakes that you make, the ones that you, the things that you agonize over, aren't going to be the ones that are going to make the difference at the end of the game. Um, the big mistakes that you make, those might make a difference. <laughs> um, but uh, even those, you know, it, it's you are going to learn from it. And uh, frankly, it's it gets into a whole question of, of a general philosophy towards towards games, where where some people. Um, Know, believe very strongly that, that you should be playing the game. Um, the you should be trying as hard as you possibly can to win. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, there are people who have fun playing 18xx that way, um, and that's great. But you can also have fun with 18xx playing it to have fun. Well, thank you very much for uh, all the time that you gentlemen have uh, spent sharing uh, your experiences and your insights uh, about this kind of fascinating family of games. I want to thank you both for uh, taking the time out uh, to do that with me tonight. I also want to, of course, thank the uh, wonderful people at uh, 2d6.org for hosting the Longview podcast and for their continued support of this podcast. And I encourage everyone to uh, uh, go there and check them out. They are a wonderful source for board game news and uh, board game commentary and all sorts of interesting topics to be explored. Special thanks also goes out to our generous sponsor, Gamesurplus.com. 
one of the web's premier online retailers for all things board games. Thor and his family will be happy to hook you up with any 18xx title that they can find for you. He just recently managed to find me a copy of 1860, and he has other 18xx copies in stock right now. So go to gamesurplus.com for all of your gaming needs. And thanks again to Game Surplus for their continued support. You can find them at www.gamesurplus.com. And please be sure to note the long view if you place an order. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me tonight, and thank you all out there for listening. <laughs>